Let me uh, let's, let's pray for the, for the teaching this morning. Let's just move right into, into the Word. Lord, we, we come before you now, and we want to open up your Word. These words you've given Isaiah to write by the Holy Spirit 700 years before Christ came, 2,700 years ago. Lord, make them alive today in our hearts by the work of the Spirit. Open our hearts up to what you are saying to us in this word. Take these words on this page and make them living and active and sharp and healing and teaching and encouraging, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 56. And like I always say, if you don't have a Bible, we'd like to bring one to you so that you can look along. We are passionate here at Mercy Hill Church about studying the scriptures. So raise your hand, don't be bashful, Isaiah 56. And while you're turning there, by the way, Isaiah 56 is on page 616 in the Bibles that we're passing out. But Isaiah 56 has been a difficult passage for me to figure out. Like, what's the flow of thought? What's, what are you giving Isaiah to say? It's been, it's been a lot of hard work. But what encourages me in passages like this is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And I've got it up here on the screen. Look at what Paul wrote, which has to do with Isaiah chapter 56. Paul said, For whatever was written in former days, talking about the Old Testament here, this is Isaiah 56 right there. That was written in former days as Paul was writing. So whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, us in the New Testament time period, us here today, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures here, Isaiah 56 included, we might have hope. So here's what this means. The Holy Spirit had Isaiah write these words for Israel, yes, but not just for Israel. The Holy Spirit had Isaiah write these very words here in Isaiah 56 for us, New Testament believers, today. 2011, here in San Jose, the Holy Spirit had Isaiah write these words for us. And through studying them, praying over them, preaching on them, thinking about them, the Holy Spirit wants to give endurance and encouragement and hope. That's what he promises to do. So let's dig in. Start with the first two verses. Thus says the Lord. This is Isaiah 56, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord. Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Okay, so what's God calling Israel to do? There's four main commands here. Keep justice, do righteousness, keep the Sabbath, and keep your hand from doing any evil. Now, there's two huge ways that we could misunderstand what Isaiah is commanding here. Two big misunderstandings that would be possible. One is to think that God is telling us, make yourself good by your own efforts. Be one possible misunderstanding. Second misunderstanding, you need to make yourself good by your own efforts first, and then, and only then, once you've made yourself good enough, can you come to God. Those are two huge misunderstandings. And the reason we know that is because of what Isaiah had told us back in Isaiah chapter 55. Remember Isaiah 55? We spent two weeks on it. In Isaiah 55, God says through Isaiah to Israel and to us, 
Come to me as you are. You don't need to try to make yourself good enough. You, you come as you are. You're repentant over your sin. Yes, I'm sorry. I come to you as I am, Father. Come as you are. You're sorry. And you, you trust that God through Jesus Christ, now that the Messiah has come, we see Jesus as the Messiah. We trust him. He is the Messiah. We trust Jesus to forgive us for all of our sins. We trust him to fill us as we bring our heart hungers and thirsts to him. We trust him to fill and satisfy us. And we trust him to go to work changing us. So we come as we are. We trust Jesus to forgive us through his death on the cross, to fill us with his Holy Spirit and satisfy us and to start changing us. And when we come to him in that way, as we are repentant, trusting He does beautiful things. He forgives us all of our sin. He pours his Holy Spirit out upon us and we feel his presence and we're satisfied in knowing him. And that heart satisfaction changes us. It changes your heart. The illustration I thought of was, it's like we're all little grape branches. Okay, got a little picture of a grape branch with no grapes on it. And here's the the grape vine. And God does not tell grape branches over here separated from the vine, grow grapes. So what God says. Remember John 15, Jesus told this parable. God says, come to me as you are. Come to the grape vine. Connect with me. Let me go to work forgiving you, filling you, and then I will change you. And what will happen when little grape branches connect to the grape vine? Grapes will grow. That's what he's calling us to do. So you come to God as you are, trusting Jesus Christ, and he forgives you. He pours his love into your heart. Your heart hungers and thirsts are satisfied. And then you start to change because you're completely satisfied in the Lord God. You know him. You trust him. He's your treasure. And because you're so satisfied in him, you want more of him. And because you want more of him, you want to follow in the path of obedience, which he says he will use to pour out even more of him through that path of obedience. And so you're changed. That's what God promises to do in Isaiah 55. And you link it up with Isaiah 56. So here's what this would have meant for an Old Testament believer hearing verses 1 and 2. An Old Testament believer would have said, okay, I'm going to come to God. Let let you, Father, satisfy me, forgive me, pour your love into my heart. Now change me. And I'm going to step out as you're changing me, and I'm going to keep justice and do righteousness. The, The overflow of your love pouring into my heart, I'm going to care for the poor. I'm going to care for the widows and the orphans. I'm going to preach the gospel to foreigners who are around us here. And Actually, at this time they were in Babylon. I'm going to stop gossiping. I'm going to stop slandering. I'm going to keep justice and do righteousness. And I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to set aside that, that day to rest and to seek my rest in you. And I'm going to keep my hand from doing any evil. I'm, going to, I'm not going to be involved in sexual sin. I'm not going to bear a grudge. I'm not going to walk in anger and unforgiveness. I'm going to keep my hand from, from evil. That's what God calls Israel to do in these first two verses. So see, there's nothing here about making yourself good by your own willpower. You come to God as you are. And there's nothing here about making yourself good enough and only then can you come to God. You come as you are, receiving forgiveness. He satisfies us and he goes to work and starts changing us. Now, I experienced this when I was in high school. I was thinking back this week. All through junior high, actually probably fourth, fifth, sixth grade, seventh and eighth grade, I'd hear sermons like about praying, the importance of praying, you know, be devoted to prayer, be devoted to prayer. And I would always feel guilty when I'd hear these sermons, and, I, and so I would, I would go home and I would, I would try to pray. But I was just kind of trying to you know, relieve my guilt feelings. I really had no interest in God. I just didn't like feeling guilty. 
And so, you know, I'd, I'd try to pray, and I had no interest in God, and it just wasn't meaningful, and so I would stop, and I would give up, and I'd hear another sermon on prayer a few months later, and I'd feel guilty, and this just kept going on until it dawned on me who Jesus Christ was, that he died on the cross to pay for sins. He doesn't call us to try to make ourselves good enough first we come as we are and that he'll change us. And that's what happened. I came to God, trusted Jesus, he filled and satisfied me, and one of the desires of my heart from that was to talk to God. I, I don't remember the exact day, but I used, to, I used to go on prayer walks, I called them. I still do that now, but I started this in high school. And I'm just, I was trying to remember, I wonder if the first time I told my mom, Mom, I'm going to go out and, and just go on a walk and pray for a while. I'll be back soon. Because she, she prayed for me every day, earnestly. Oh, God, save my son, you know, because I was, anyway. Uh, but I just think, it must have really struck her. I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to pray, because I love to go walk and pray. But see, it was the Lord changing my heart. It was coming to him as I was. He changed, he brought it about. So putting chapter 56 together with chapter 55, here's what God's calling Israel and us to do. Do justice, keep righteousness, okay? Seek your joy, first of all, in God, because then the overflow of who he is will cause you to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, keep justice, do righteousness. Keep the Sabbath, keep your hand from evil, all outflowing from your coming to God as you are and letting him meet you and fill you. That's what he's calling us to do, verses 1 and 2. Now, what's this about keeping the Sabbath, though? Who keeps the Sabbath? Okay. Blessed is the man who does this. Who keeps the Sabbath? What, what's that about? And notice, there's amazing promises in this passage about the Sabbath. You already saw one in verse 2. Blessed is the man who keeps the Sabbath. So I, I want blessing. Uh, notice verses 4 and 5. He says, to the eunuchs, we're going to come back and explain that in a moment, who keep my Sabbaths, and here's all these promises in verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So that's an amazing promise to the eunuchs who keep his Sabbaths. And look at verses uh, 6 and 7. Foreigners, to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, Skip down a couple lines. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And so on. So here's some amazing promises given to Israel in response to their Sabbath keeping. So what role does Sabbath keeping have for New Testament believers? Okay, have you ever thought about keeping the Sabbath? And what does that mean if we're supposed to think about that? Now, here's a couple points just to help you think this through, okay? Just to, to process this, and I've got some scriptures, and you can study this more on your own. First of all, what was the Sabbath all about in the Old Testament? Okay? In the Old Testament, God gave Israel a day to rest, to commemorate that God, after six days of creation, took the seventh day to rest, all right? That was the whole point of it. And they would especially were to be, so they're doing no work, they're resting, and especially they're seeking their rest in God. That's where true rest is found. So they set apart times to seek the Lord and to come before Him. So I mean, who could balk? If, if your creator, God the creator, comes and says, now listen, thou shalt take a day off. Okay, don't work seven days. You don't need to work seven days. I will t- provide for you. I will take care of you. So work six days. Take a day off, okay? Take a day off. Rest. 
where you do no work and especially seek your rest in casting all your cares upon me and going deep and learning who I am and gathering with God's people to worship and to praise like we've done this morning. So who could balk at that? Nobody. But the scribes and Pharisees took all those commands about the Sabbath and they destroyed the original intention of the Sabbath and they made it a day to display their own righteousness before other people instead of a day to seek their heart rest in God. And so you can see in the New Testament all these strange commands that had no that were never taught in the Old Testament, but they had come up with them on their own, like this is exactly how far you can walk on the Sabbath day. Old Testament never said how far you were supposed to walk on the Sabbath day. It said, don't work and rest. Okay, they said no one can get healed on the Sabbath day. Remember that one? And Jesus, you're working. Stop healing people on the Sabbath. They're going to be sick again tomorrow. You can heal them tomorrow, okay? What? Are you kidding me? Um, when the disciples were walking, they were just heading somewhere, and they, it was totally right to do. They, were, they picked some grain from the field. Well, now you're threshing. Okay, stop your work. So they had all these laws that the Old Testament had never taught, and they had taken all the rest, Godwardness of the Sabbath and distorted it into a system by which they could show people, I'm not doing any work. I'm more righteous than anybody. And Jesus came, and he kept the Sabbath as God intended. Okay, Jewish man kept the Sabbath as God intended, not as the Pharisees and scribes did. But he also taught a couple different times that he had authority to change the Sabbath. Remember when Jesus said it's the end of Mark chapter 2, verse 28, he says, the Son of Man, it's his reference to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what he's saying there is, I have authority to change the Sabbath. As God, I have authority to change the Sabbath. And as you read through the New Testament, you can see that Jesus did make changes in the Sabbath. It's fascinating to see. For, here's a couple of them. T- turn to these. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. It's on page 953 in the Bibles we passed out. 1 Corinthians 3.16. In the Old Testament, remember, worship was all focused on one place, the temple. Remember that? You'd go to the temple. That's where you worship. That was the focal points. That has changed with the coming of Jesus. Now, since Jesus came, well, let's, let's look at what he says. Look what Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, Do you not know that you, and that's in the plural, all of you, God's people, trusting Jesus, are God's temple? Now that would have just blown away Jewish people who are steeped in the Old Testament. There's the temple. We go to the temple. There's the temple. We go there. Remember all the laws about how to build it and how it should be exactly according to specifications? Very, 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 very important. But here, God says through Paul, you are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you, plural. So the temple is no longer a physical building. Now the temple is God's people. So we are... So Justin and I were God's temple yesterday morning at his house as we were hanging out. Okay, our home group Wednesday night as we were eating together. Here we are being God's temple here. Some of you can be God's temple tomorrow night if you're you know meeting at a Starbucks talking and praying together. We're God's temple. Okay. Look at Acts chapter twenty verse seven. It's page nine twenty nine. Here we see that the early church. I mean, again, with God's people being the temple, you see in the book of Acts, for example, that every day they were together. I mean, God's people are together in all kinds of settings. They're a community. It's not a meeting you go to. It's a group of people you're a part of. But they did specially set aside one day of the week, especially to focus on gathering together. And it's the first day of the week. It's not 
the last day, Saturday. It's the first day, Sunday. And you can see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Paul says, actually Luke is writing this, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Okay? Long teaching here going on. You can also see this reference to the first day in 1 Corinthians 16.2. And this is probably what John is referring to in Revelation 1.10 when he talks about the Lord's Day. Okay, so the early church believers are the temple. We're together at all different times. We're a community of believers. But there is a setting apart of a day. And we're seeking to focus to have that day be a day where we can set apart to worship the Lord. Now... In the Old Testament, it was one culture, Israel, a theocracy, right? King David, a combination, uh, one culture. With the coming of Christ and the Great Commission, we take the gospel into all different cultures. And so there were slaves, for example, who worked seven days a week, okay, under their master, and they needed to find time. How can I get rest given this culture? There's a diversity of cultures. And so the New Testament, just there's a one monocultural thing through the Old Testament, Great Commission, boom, the church goes out and spreads, and, and, and it, be, it, it, uh, it incarnates itself into many, many different cultures. And so there's got to be great flexibility in how all of this is lived out and pursued and how it, how it functions. And you see that in Romans 14.5. Turn there, Romans 14.5. This is page 948. See, we know that believers gather together regularly on Sundays, worship, fellowship, encouragement, communion. But from Romans 14.5, we see that what else they did or didn't do, that was left between them and the Lord to figure out in terms of their schedule, employment, all these different things. Look at Romans 14.5. Remember, this is written by Paul, who was an ex-Pharisee. These are amazing words for Paul to write. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Okay, so there's a a difference here in the Roman church. Some people thought that there was just one day, and here's what should happen on that one day. Others said, well, all days are alike. What Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So what this means is that every believer says, God, how can I rest? How can I rest in you? How can I gather with your people? How can I pursue this? And I think there's great wisdom in the creation mandate of working six days and resting one day. Do you do that? Let me call you to the wisdom of that, of taking one day. Just think God says, thou shalt take a day off. This is such good news. God loves us. He cares about us. He wants you to rest. Don't be a workaholic. Take a day off. Some of you need to hear that loud and clear. That's what's happening in the New Testament. That's for us right now. There's great wisdom in keeping that creation ordinance of working for six days and then, and then resting on the seventh. And the early church to commemorate Jesus' resurrection focused on the first day of the week as the day that they sought to gather together to worship. So here's how we structured that at Mercy Hill Church. So we've got our home groups, which are our communities of brothers and sisters gathered together. And we meet at all different times during the week. But Sunday mornings, this is a gathering of home groups here. We set this aside. And I would encourage you, don't wake up Sunday and just and say to your wife, uh, should, we, should we go go this morning or not? Just, just This is what you're, you're, you're part of the body. You're part of this temple. You're part of that home group family. So be here. Unless you know, you're sick or out of town. Those things happen. Okay. 
So we gather together Sunday mornings, both those who are in home groups and those who can't be in home groups, we're here. And then during the week, we also gather together in smaller groups. My home group meets on Wednesday nights and we break bread together. We worship together. We study the scriptures together. We bear each other's burdens together. Okay, but all of this is done with with the rhythm of it's important to have that day where we rest, especially where we are resting in God, where we're resting our souls in the Lord, we're casting our burdens upon Him, and we're doing this all between us and the Lord as the Lord leads us to. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay, now, let's, let's take all that, and here's what I believe the Holy Spirit would say to us through Isaiah 55 and 56. Here's what God's calling us to do. Isaiah 55, regularly come before the Lord with your heart emptinesses and your heart hungers and your thirsts. Do you do that? Do you take time on a regular basis to come before the Lord as you are? Say, Lord, help me. Change me. Through Jesus, satisfy me. He will forgive you. He will pour his love into your heart. He will satisfy you and then he will start to change you. And the outflow of that is you will do righteousness and justice. You will love others. You'll care for the widow and the orphan. You'll care for the poor. Your heart will break for the unreached people groups. You'll want to tell people at your workplace about Jesus. You'll you'll want to tell people in your neighborhood about Jesus. You'll do righteousness and justice. And then we'll keep the Sabbath in the New Testament way. Okay, where we work out with God how we can have a day of rest, how we're going to be gathering with God's people to worship Him and to learn from the Word and to fellowship together. And we'll keep our hands from doing evil. So we're going to be fighting temptations to sin. We're fighting off sexual temptation and, and fighting off greed and fighting off pride. And, and when we do stumble, we're going to be coming back to Jesus Christ saying, here we are, forgive me, I've stumbled. Wash me, cleanse me, satisfy me again in who you are. That's what God's calling us to do in verses 1 and 2. Now this isn't going to be easy to do, okay? Because remember the picture, they got the in and out, you got the gravel, we did that the last two weeks. And our remaining sin, we've been saved we have new natures, born again, but there's still remaining sin this side of heaven. And that, there's this pull back this way to the things that used to satisfy us. Here's Jesus Christ over here. There's this pull back. It's not easy to keep turning our back on this. And so what Isaiah does in the rest of this section from verses 3 to 8 is he wants to answer the question and give us more information, more help. Why should we turn from everything else to pursue God's promises? That is, why should we keep turning our back on the other things that we used to trust to satisfy us and just keep trusting Jesus Christ and God's promises in him as is going to satisfy our lives. Why should we do that? And this, this is a hard passage to figure out. So let me share with you what I think is going on here and I'll give you a chance to ask some questions and see if this makes sense to you as to what Isaiah is getting at here. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, Let not the foreigner, okay, that's anyone who's not racially Jewish, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So the foreigner should not say that, the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord. Don't say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch, this is a man who because of physical injury or deformity isn't able to father children. So let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I'm, I'm not able to have children. Here's what I think is going on here. Just try this out. See if this, see if this works for you. Commentators are all over the map on this passage. But th- this, this made sense to me. I think Isaiah is using two different groups of people to illustrate how 
infinitely precious God's promises are to motivate us to keep turning to God's promises in Christ away from the promises that the world has for us. Two ways he does this. Let's start with the eunuchs. The eunuchs show that God, what God promises is better than anything that this life can offer to us. Okay, track with me here. The eunuch says, I'm a dry tree. That's what he's bewailing. I can't father biological children. Now, in any culture, that's a heartbreaking situation. But in Old Testament culture, especially because there was major emphasis put upon children who would carry on your name. We're much more individualistic now, not quite the same emphasis on that now, but back then, that was a huge issue. Children who can carry on your name. And so if you were not able to father children, you would not have children who could carry on your name. And so the burning question would be, what could make up for such a huge loss as this? Here's this poor man who can't father biological children. What could make up for that? And look at what God promises in verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenants, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Underline that word better. I'm going to do something for you better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And I think the point here is that God promises, or that that what God promises is better than anything else this life can offer. Nothing wrong with having biological children. What a gift. What a blessing. But what God promises is even better than that. And the point is that the promises that God has for you in Christ are better than anything that the world offers you. So turn and seek God in Christ. Trust his promises. That's what I think the point of the, the eunuchs is. Foreigners, what about them? I think that point is is to show that if you join yourself to God in Jesus Christ, nothing will ever separate you from him and his promises. If today you join yourself to Jesus Christ, you trust him, forever you're going to be joined to him. He will keep you pressing on. Nothing from the outside can take you away. Your heart won't walk away finally. He will keep you moving ahead. Nothing will separate you from him and his promises. Notice in verse 3, the foreigner says, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So like, where does that come from? And I think it's just, remember in, in the Old Testament, God's strategy was to work through the nation of Israel as a means of bringing salvation to all the people groups, right? That was God's strategy. And that happened. Remember Rahab, okay, the, the, the prostitute from Jericho joined God's people. Ruth, the Moabitess, joined God's people. Jethro, Moses, uh, father-in-law, Midianite, I think he was, right? Joined God's people. So God called Israel to take the gospel to the nations. Okay, but still, it would be easy for foreigners to think with all the focus on Israel, 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 you could think that they were really God's favorites and that he's going to end up kicking me out because I'm a foreigner. Okay, but look what God promises to foreigners. We're all foreigners, right? Unless you're Jewish, right? You got that? Okay, look what he says, verses 6 through 8. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Remember who quoted that? Jesus, right? When he's cleansing the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Then verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I'm not going to stop there. He declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, nothing will separate you from God's promises. And that's true for us. So here's what this means. If you join yourself to God through Jesus Christ, nothing will ever separate you from God's promises in Christ. You can be absolutely 100% confident God will keep you from stumbling in a final way. He will bring you to his presence with glory and great joy. You will be there. You can be 100% certain that he's going to be keeping you, carrying you, and bringing you into glory forever. He'll bring you to his holy mountain, is what he says here. Maybe that's a reference to the new heavens and the new earth. He will make you joyful in his house of prayer. You will have times where in prayer he pours his joy out upon you. And your offerings will be accepted on his altar. That is, he's accepted Christ's payment for your sins. You are forgiven. You're completely accepted. You're blameless before him now because of Christ. That's what's the truth for the foreigner or for anyone who joins yourself to the Lord. Nothing, nothing will ever make you separated from God's promises. So he uses the eunuchs to show that God's promises are worth anything else that the world could offer. And he uses the foreigners to show that if you're trusting Jesus Christ, nothing will separate you from God's promises. These come together to say that nothing that the world offers comes even close to what God promises in Christ. And so turn from those things, join yourself to him, trust him, follow him, seek him, go hard after him. That's the word that Isaiah has given to us here. Okay, now, does that make sense? Does that, like, is that a plausible way to take this passage? Or any questions? Like, I don't get that. Or what about the Sabbath thing? Or what questions does this stir up in your mind? My goal is to teach the scriptures in a way so that you see from the scriptures truth. So you walk away thinking not what I said, but what the the text says. So what's most important is that you're seeing things in the text this morning. That's what the Holy Spirit gave us, the inspired text of scripture. So what, what questions does this raise about this passage or about anything I've said? Yeah, good question. Uh, So it seems very straightforward. How how did the scribes and Pharisees get so messed up? And um, their sin, right? I mean, you know this. But I mean, think of how many people think that they're following the New Testament. Well, I'm I'm following the New Testament. I love my neighbors myself, right? I I don't lie to people. So I'm, I'm doing the New Testament right. Is that the New Testament? Well, no. I mean... It's a little part of it, but you're missing the whole picture, right? Jesus, the cross, forgiveness, justification, mercy, knowing God. Not just, I, I, you know, I, I, I love my neighbor as myself and I, I, I don't lie. So there's people who take the New Testament that way as well. We all have indwelling sin in us. Some people read the scriptures and they respond with rebellion. No way. I'm going to go out and commit sin and I'm just going to... Other people rebel by saying, I can do that. I can do that. I'll show God how great I am. Right? I'm a good, I, I, can, I can do good. That's what the Pharisees did. And then they twisted it and they, just, they, uh, they distorted the whole thing. So 
Anybody else with the thought about Carl's question? It's a really astute question. Does that make sense? How did the Pharisees and the scribes get so messed up? Okay. Somebody else? Last call. Maybe there's not a lot of questions today, so let me move. But if there is one, I want to hear it. Okay, well, let's, let's just drive this, drive this passage home then. Here's, here's what I want you to be thinking about. There may be some of you here this morning who have never joined yourself to God through Jesus Christ. You, you, you never have. And I, I want to urge you, do it now. Right now. Turn from whatever else you've been trusting to satisfy your heart and your life and see God for who he is as revealed in Jesus Christ. Creator, sovereign, holy, righteous. You need to be forgiven by him. You've sinned against him as we all have. He's made a way for you to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. You can trust Jesus as your Savior, Lord, and treasure. You'll be completely forgiven. He will pour his presence out upon you and satisfy your heart in himself and he'll go to work and start to change you. Remember, the grape branch gets stuck to the vine. That's how the grapes grow. He will change you. And so, I mean, just be really honest. It's not a, not a matter of you know, whether you try to be a good person or whether you go to church, but have you joined yourself to God through Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus? Are you trusting him? Do you love him? Do that today. Turn to him. Trust his death. Trust his resurrection. Trust him. I think others of you, uh, you've joined yourself to God through Christ um, and you've been following him. But it's been, it's been hard. There's been cost. There's been suffering. Uh, there's been loss. There's been trials. And I just want to urge you, because you've, you've thought, you know, is, is it worth it? But I tell you, what God promises to you in Christ is better than anything that the world could offer. It's better than anything the world could offer. He loves you. He cares for you. He's sovereignly working through every trial you're going through to bring you even more joy in him. That's what he's doing. He's, he, he's wise. He's good. He's loving. So take heart and be encouraged and don't, don't grow weary in trusting him. Keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. That's just a word to those of you who are going through trials. And then there's probably others of you where you joined yourself to God in Christ, but, but there's things that are pulling you away from him. You can put your finger on exactly what those are right now. Maybe there's this you know, hot babe at the office, or maybe there's this, this you know, I don't know, this career path that maybe wouldn't be wrong to pursue, but there's all kinds of pride and boastfulness tied up in that. You know how easy that is? And there's things that are pulling you away from following Jesus Christ with all your heart. And what Isaiah would want to say to you is, listen, what God promises in Christ is better than anything that the world could offer. And if you do come to God through Jesus Christ, nothing will ever separate you from his promises. So turn from those things that are pulling you away from Christ. Turn from them. Ask him to help you. Change me. Satisfy me. Help me. I'm being swept away by this. Save me. And he will. He will completely save you. Then one other, one other application, and that is, some of you, I think, have probably joined yourself to God through Jesus Christ, and you've been following him. Um, but you haven't been doing much in terms of advancing the gospel. You know, how are you fulfilling the Great Commission? And God has different ways for each of us to do this. He has ways for me that aren't the ways for you, that aren't the ways for you, that aren't the ways for you, but he has ways for each of us. It'll fit you. It'll fit your your 
lifestyle. It, maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's you know being involved in the kids club or you know going to Morocco this spring or whatever it might be. He has a way. Do you know? Have you come before the Lord and said, "How do you want me to advance the gospel?" And see that that'll be the longing of your heart when you receive heart satisfaction in Him. One of the outflows of that will be broken heartedness for those who don't know Him, and you come to Him and say, "So." How can I advance the gospel? What is your way for me? I just want to urge you, have you asked the Lord that question? In our home groups, we we work on helping each person find your God-called niche. He has a niche for you. We'll help train you. We'll help equip you. We'll be praying and supporting you. We'll be working with you. He has a way for you. Do you know your way? I mean, think about what happened, Mercy Hill Church, if each one of us has come before the Lord and has received our niche, our call, how to advance the gospel, how the gospel would be multiplying. That's what he calls us to do. So if you've joined yourself to the Lord, receive from him so much so that the overflow of that will be compassion for lost people and reaching out to them and seeking to help them come to, come to faith. That's what he calls us to do. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. Ask God to deeply impact us with who he is and what he promises here. So Lord, here we are. Thank you for having the Holy Spirit give Isaiah this passage. And thank you for the encouragement, the challenge, the conviction. I pray, Lord, for each one here that each one here would be connecting with you through Jesus Christ in hearts right now. Turning from the other things we've been tempted to trust and trusting you alone. Lord, bring encouragement to those who are weary. Bring conviction to those who are being drawn away. Bring a specific gospel-advancing call to those who don't have one yet. And for those who've never turned to trust you, Lord, let today be the day when they turn to trust you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.